Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks, Lori LeBay, and I am really excited about our show today. We are going to be talking about keeping safe in this crazy little world that we live in. And um, we're going to be talking about wandering, and we're going to go into great depths. We're going to be focusing on Project Lifesaver, and we have. Um, the founder of Project Lifesaver, along with the sheriff who's utilizing it. Um, we're lucky to have Mara Botanis with us, who has some wonderful tips and great insights. And we also have people living with dementia that are going to share their views and feelings um, regarding wandering, <clears throat> eloping, escaping, exploring, whatever you want to call it. Um, but before we start the show, I always like to introduce who we are at all speaks and why we do what we do you see my mother had dementia for 30 years and her journey was life-changing for me and I switched careers and I am now all about giving voice um, to everyone involved in this journey I really believe it's the only way that we're going to be able to shift our care culture and become dementia friendly and really understand this disease. And so Alzheimer Speaks is an advocacy-based company that provides multiple platforms to help shift our care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. Um, we like to raise everyone's voice from those who are diagnosed with the disease, uh, family care partners, professionals, um, authors, musicians, um, Harvard Research has been on, you name it. Um, everybody's voice is important. And that's why I'm so excited about today's show because I think we have a really well-rounded um, group here. And we always, always invite our audience to um, join in in the chatter. Um, we want to hear your thoughts and your opinions or maybe you've got a question you want to ask. This is a platform that you can do that at. Um, and again, today we're going to be focusing pretty much on on wandering, though. So if you'd like to call in um, when you know when you're listening and talk to us live, that number is seven one four three six four four seven five seven. Again, that's seven one four three six four four seven five seven. Or you can always utilize the chat box and uh, join us that way as well. Um, <clears throat> I also 
like to give a little shout out um, to some organizations that I, I think it's really important that people know about. Many times when people are dealing with Alzheimer's or dementia, they're not quite sure how to find their Alzheimer's Association. And the easiest way is really to go to Alzheimer's Disease International. That is the association of all the Alzheimer's associations around the world. When you go there, you'll be able to find uh, very easily the closest organization to you, plus you're going to get a lot of great global insight and what, what the movement is on a global sphere. If you're looking for a holistic approach, I recommend Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. And in fact, they always have some fun contests going on. So check them out. Um, they do a lot of uh, great educational uh, pieces, and uh, they focus basically on diet, nutrition, exercise, meditation, things of that nature. You'll also, uh, many people will have different types of dementia. It might be Lewy body, it might be frontal temporal lobe, um, or maybe they're dealing with aphasia, which is their speech. And there are national organizations that I recommend that you seek out information there. No one organization um, or body um, a community out there has everything you need. So, you know, check these things out. There's so much great information at your fingertips. Um, music Connect um, has some powerful research behind music and ha is a great tool in terms of connecting and engaging with people as well. And so, um, again, another fabulous, fabulous resource for you. And if you're looking for a way to um, <clears throat> connect through maybe um, games or entertainment, Puzzle With Me has um, appropriate size, um, age-appropriate um, pieces uh, for puzzles along with Jiminy Wicket, which is a croquet um, adaptive game that can be used intergenerational. And again, it can be used by families or it can be used um, for schools and um, maybe memory care units. So very, very neat, neat process. If you're not familiar with the Purple Angel Project, you're also going to want to check that out. Um, the Purple Angel um, is the new global symbol for dementia. It's free of charge. All you have to do is read a poster and you can be off and running with helping raise awareness. Our goal um, with this is started over in the UK um, and it has gone globally. Alzheimer's Speaks is now the U.S. launch for the Purple Angel here in our country. Um, just go to alzheimerspeaks.com, go to our About page and click on the Purple Angel tab there to get more information. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out out to me as well. Last, I want to give a shout out to my friends at uh, HealthStar Home Health. Um, they just do a fabulous job. I was so proud to work with them at our state fair. They are continuing to do their memory screenings. Um, they've opened up a memory cafe. They have become an Alzheimer's whisperer. And we are going to be having a future show talking um, to them about what exactly that means <clears throat> and how that affects affects their clients um, and the families that they work with. So let's go ahead and get started um, 
and get this the show started on keeping safe in today's world. You know, the news just flashes before us all the time with with scary, scary stories. And and actually, for me, um, how this kind of came about was um, I shared a story with uh, Mara Botanis, um where a uh, a family friend's sister who was living in a, an assisted living walked away. <clears throat> and um, wasn't found for 30 days. And I, I was really shocked at the process. And, um, and so she said, gosh, you know, we, you know, we should have a show on Project Lifesaver. And that is something that we don't have here in Minnesota, or if we do, people don't know it exists um, in all areas, um, which is something that needs to be be corrected if that is indeed the case. Um, but where this person was, it, it definitely was not tapped into, and I think it could have been so beneficial on so many different levels. So what I'm going to do um, with the show today is I'm going to go ahead and introduce everybody first, and then we'll get started with conversation because I want you to kind of know the pieces of the puzzle um, with this with this gameplay that we have today. So uh, Chief uh, Gene Saunders is the Director and General Founder and Chief Executive Officer for Project Lifesaver International. Um, he was a captain at Chesapeake Police Department in Virginia and retired Hired in February, February of 2001 with 33 years of service. He founded the Chesapeake um, PD SWAT team. He's established trainings, um, certifications, operational procedures, um, and commanded for 23 years over 800 successful operations ranging from search and rescue to hostage uh, to barricaded subjects, um, high-risk raid. So he has, he really has just a fabulous, fabulous background um, to to head up um, this whole program. And he's won numerous awards throughout his career. So welcome, Chief Saunders. We're so thrilled to have you today. Good morning. I'm, I'm very thrilled to be here and uh, to help you address the uh, the growing problem that we have in the wandering area. Great. I'm going to next just briefly introduce um, one of your colleagues, um, who is Paul Balance. And Paul is with Norfolk, Virginia Sheriff's Office, and he has coordinated um, the Project Lifesaver Initiative and has um, been involved in a large number of rescues over the over the past 10 years. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Lori. Nice to be here. Well, I'm I'm thrilled. Like I said, I'm thrilled to have you. Next, I'm going to go ahead and introduce um, Mara Botanis, and Mara is just a joy and a half uh, to have with us. Um, again, without her, uh, this show probably wouldn't have happened um, because of our conversation. Mara is the author of When Caring Takes Courage, and she's a speaker. She's an Alzheimer's uh, family caregiver advocate and um, just a huge, huge supporter of awareness. She is an exceptional advocate for shifting our dementia care culture, and I so admire her dedication and passion to improving the lives um, for those living with this disease. 
and I'm honored to be working with her um, on a newly charged U.S. national group, the Dementia Action Alliance as well. So welcome, Mara. Thank you, Lori. Thanks so much for having me and for your kind words. Well, thank you. Um, Next, I'm going to um, introduce to you um, three nationally recognized advocates each who has been living with dementia. The first I'm going to introduce is uh, Mr. Rick Phelps, who actually, Rick was one of my very first contacts on social media and had such a huge impact um, on me. He is the founder of Memory People, and um, when when Rick was working, he was um, an EMS worker. So he worked with emergency services, and so I know, uh, I know, Rick, you're going to add so much to this show, and I thank you for being with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Lorian. I'm so proud to be here today with all your other guests. This is going to be a great topic, and I'm certainly glad that I'm involved. Yep. Wonderful. Next, I'm going to introduce uh, Mr. Harry Urban, and um, Harry had a profound um, a profound effect on me as well. And I met Harry through Memory People on Rick's Facebook page. Um, Harry has also developed a Facebook uh, page uh, in support for people dealing with dementia called Forget Me Not, and he also uh, works with us on dementia chats. Um, he frequently calls into the radio show as well. And, um, again, I I just love working with all three of these men because their insights are so powerful and have really been life-changing for me. So welcome, Harry. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Harry. Thank you uh, for having me. Well, good, good. Well, least but or last but not least is Mr. Michael Ellen Bogan, and Michael has um, has been uh, dealing with dementia for quite some time. He's written the book um, from the corner office to Alzheimer's, and he he speaks nationally. He's involved with our our national Alzheimer's um, project. Um, he's he's very well connected. He's gone down in the cr- congressional records. I just saw an email um, again from Michael this morning saying, you know, he's he's going to be listed again. So he's out there representing. Each one of these men have a, have a powerful voice and use their own personal life experience and, and their their own um, comfort zones to get out there and touch and reach people in just a magnificent way. So welcome, Michael. How are you doing? Good morning, Lori. I am doing great, and uh, thank you for having me here. Well, good, good. We're going to go ahead and and, uh, get started with some of these questions here. Um, And I'm going to start with pulling in Mara first, because, um, Mara, one of the things that people always ask is, what the heck causes someone wander off and and maybe you can even talk about different terms that are used um because sure. wandering isn't always the term um that people prefer no and you know this is one of those moments where i would encourage everybody who's listening right now 
to get a pen and a paper out because there's going to be something from the show today that that you're going to be able to apply in the care of your loved one right now. There are so many behaviors and triggers, and whether you're calling it eloping, exit-seeking, wandering, we're going to talk in just a minute about what some of those most common triggers are. Um, Later throughout the show, we'll have an opportunity to talk about wandering intervention ideas and what do you do once that behavior starts to help de-escalate it a little bit. We'll even share a home safety checklist, some things, real easy, inexpensive things that that you can do yourself to decrease the risk. And then um, if if a wandering incident occurs, just real quickly, um, step-by-step instructions, what do you do in that emergency situation? But first, um, just to kind of start with, with wandering, now we all know because we've been dealing with this disease, either living with it as some of your guests are or loving someone that's Um, been showing signs and symptoms that every person with Alzheimer's and dementia has different needs and wants and and exhibits different behaviors at different phases in the disease process. So I want to get that out right away. Um, What I'm going to be sharing with you in just a moment comes right from our book, When Caring Takes Courage, and that was called, the information was mined from hundreds of healthcare professionals and countless family caregivers. And while I recognize that not everything you might hear will apply to you in your situation at home, I think we got a pretty good chance of giving you something useful, only because we really searched diligently from best practices in every corner we could find them. Um, so basically, one of the things that really manifested itself when I was researching one at at early, mid, and late stages of the disease process, we came up with the feedback we got ended up creating six common reasons that folks exit, seek, or wander. And we know that sometimes the environmental stimulation, the time of day, um, where somebody's at in the disease process, and what we've been asking them to do all day, their sleep patterns, so many things can impact the occurrence of this behavior. But I think one of the first things I want to talk about is that not all wandering is a desire to exit seek. Sometimes that pacing is a way to physically cope with uh, some agitation or anxiousness, and sometimes it's a need for a little bit more life enrichment or stimulation. So sometimes those early indicators that somebody might wander could be that that's someone that's pacing, that's really looking for a way to physically get out some of the agitation they're experiencing well before anybody takes that first step outside the home. This is something you want to prevent and reduce the risk as much as possible. I talk a lot about this being one of those don't lock the barn door after the horse. After 29 years in senior housing, the most common reason families were in my office exploring a residential care option for a loved one was because a wandering incident has occurred. So the Alzheimer's Association's latest facts and figures report states that Sometimes throughout the disease process, there's a 60% chance that persons with dementias and other Alzheimer's are going to wander. So the key here is to know what these triggers are and put a plan in place ahead of time. So here are those most common reasons I promised you. Um, The first one that was most commonly cited during the research I conducted was folks were articulating that they were searching for an item that they believe is lost or looking for a specific person, trying to get to a specific place. At home, this sounds like, I need my purse. I need to get to work. I'm looking for my mom. Where's my husband? Um, I I need to get in the car. I want to go home. 
So that was one very common thing that we heard an awful lot. And again, in a moment, we're going to talk about interventions and what to do when you hear that. Um, The second thing was experiencing some type of a delusion. And that might be something like your loved one trying to fulfill a responsibility from a long-ago past, something that they feel like they need to get done that's unresolved. And again, this could be the care of a child, um, responsibilities at work, an unfinished chore, Something in their mind is on repeat that that has been left undone that needs to be resolved, and we want to support that. Um, The third thing that was the most common of the six was escaping a perceived danger or threat. And and this one I know was kind of offensive to caregivers who try so hard every day to create a safe and loving environment. So I I want to know that, that I understand that perspective as well. But for the person living with Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, that frightening situation could be something as easy as or as um, simple as trying to get them to take a bath or medications, or maybe it's time to get in the car and go to a doctor's appointment. Uh, it could be overstimulating environment and the noise, a strange visitor in the house, or even the belief that someone's trying to do them harm or hurt them, and that's what they might be trying to escape. The fourth of the six, um, I alluded to it earlier, is agitation. There, there's this restless energy and, and a need to um, express it in some way. Something is not feeling right, something's not comfortable, and there could be many reasons for that, which we'll also talk about a little bit later. It um, could be a change in routine, lack of exercise, a need for life enrichment activities, just some general unease, having a bad day. Um, The fifth of the six could be caused by recent medication changes, and we speak often about the need to consult with your physician and healthcare providers when you're seeing changes in behaviors as a result of changes in the treatment plan. Um, Sometimes the littlest things, a change in diet, medication, sleep patterns, daily routine, can have some unintended consequences. So as caregivers, the more aware we are of what is different from one day to the next, and what maybe caused it can only help our care team rally behind the person we love so much. Um, The sixth and last one I wanted to encourage caregivers to identify as a potential trigger is any pain or discomfort. And sometimes, especially in the later stages of the disease process, folks might not always be able to articulate when something hurts. You know, if your hip is sore and it's constantly throbbing and causing you a lot of pain, then sitting down isn't something you're going to want to do. So you might be looking to always be up and about because you're uncomfortable or because you're hurt. Maybe your clothing is too hot or you're too cold where you're at. Uh, maybe you're wearing something that's itchy. Maybe you need to go to the restroom and you don't know how to tell the person that's, that's supporting your care needs that that's what the need is. So when you're looking at, at what the triggers are, I guess it, those six things kind of boil down to three areas. Um, if you wanted to make it real simple and you taking notes at home, environmental stimulation, um, any physical unmet need, and any kind of a psychosocial need. And this is kind of the difference between the physical symptoms and feelings. How is that person feeling right now and what can I do to, to increase a sense of calm and comfort? So those are some things that you kind of want to look out for on a regular basis as you notice changes in your loved one's behavior and I guess the other thing I want to say is we have some phenomenal expertise on the on the call today, but I think it bears being said there isn't a magic 
pill or one approach that works for everybody, and there isn't a way to 100% prevent your loved one from ever wandering. But I believe that some of the ideas that you're going to hear today will help reduce the risk. And, And this is something as important and urgent to do today as making sure your loved one gets the right medications and is properly cleaned and fed and bathed and toileted and that all of their needs are met from a psychosocial perspective. I implore you, work on shutting the barn door before it's too late because only one time of this happening is one time too many. I totally agree. Thank you so much, Mara. Um, uh, Excuse me, Chief Saunders, I'm going to ask you to explain exactly what is Project Lifesaver and how did it get established? Certainly. Uh, uh, First, I'd like to echo uh, everything Mara said because we're finding pretty much the same thing in in the the field work that we're doing. Now, as far as how Project Lifesaver started and why, uh, you have to understand that Project Lifesaver was formed from a first responder or a law enforcement officer's point of view. Uh, While I was with the Chesapeake, Virginia Police Department, as you uh, said earlier, I was in charge of special operations, which included search and rescue. One of the things that became apparent in the late 80s and late 90s is that we were being activated for more searches for Alzheimer's patients. Um, Didn't know much about it. Didn't know much about wandering. All we knew is that we were out now doing a lot of looking for Alzheimer's patients that had become missing. And the fact of the matter was that we were not real successful at locating them before the search became tragic. We didn't understand things like there was a 24-hour window and that uh, Alzheimer's patients aren't going to help you in the search. And one of the words you have to throw out when you're searching for an Alzheimer's or dementia patient is the word reasonable. Uh, What would a reasonable person do under the circumstances? So that in mind, um, uh, well, something happened uh, Uh, Prior to that, uh, the search and rescue function moved to the sheriff's office, and uh, I was uh, convinced or influenced or whatever terminology you want to use to volunteer to head that up, uh, the search and rescue function for the sheriff's office. We still were doing the same things. We were getting the same type calls. And it just occurred to me there had to be a better way to do this. About the late 90s, I got a brochure through the, uh, from the sheriff through inner office concerning uh, the electronic tracking of wildlife. In other words, using radio telemetry to locate wildlife and study their migratory habits and so forth. It just occurred to me that if we could identify those persons that may wander off and become lost, supply them with a radio tracking device, we could probably intervene much earlier, be able to locate them a lot quicker, and resolve the situation uh, to a much better uh, resolution than we had been in the past. That in mind, I talked to the manufacturers, and sure enough, they were able to assist me. Uh, So now I had an idea and I had a theory, but I had no money. I was able to convince a local hospital to fund a pilot project uh, for 15 months. With that money in hand, uh, we got our equipment, 
because nobody else was doing anything like this to this scale, we we had to develop training procedures. We had to develop uh, ways to address the situation. Well, nobody to copy from. We just went on our own and invented them. Uh, we made a press release uh, shortly after the press release. In fact, the same day, we started getting calls from all over the Hampton Roads area concerning uh, wandering incidents and, and people that were wandering off and caregivers that wanted to address the issue. Uh, we started the, the program. Uh, shortly uh, after that, uh, we removed the program itself from the Sheriff's Office and consolidated it into a 501c3 nonprofit so that we could, because we were getting so many requests from all over the state, uh, all over the country to implement this program, we felt that in order to administrate it properly, uh, we needed to have it from under the sheriff, although we were still doing the searches for the sheriff's office. Well, that's pretty much how it all came out. It was started essentially for Alzheimer's, to search for Alzheimer's wandering incidents. Uh, Shortly after we started it, other departments and other agencies started hearing about what we wanted or what we were doing and wanted to implement it for themselves. And now the program has grown to over 1,400 agencies in 48 states and six provinces in Canada and one in Australia. And the figure that I am most proud of is that during the 15 years since Project Lifesaver has started, our member agencies have uh, brought home safely 2,897 people without a failure uh, in an average time of 30 minutes or less, which I think that speaks volumes to the agencies and the people that conduct the program. And I guess that in a nutshell is you know, where we came from and uh, uh, where we are at this point. Wow, 2,897, that's a lot, that's a lot of people and a lot of, uh, I would imagine, happy families. Um, I, I just, I can't imagine the, the turmoil that people go through um, when, when this happens. I know with my, with my friend, when her sister was missing, it was just, it was an absolutely horrible horrible um, feeling. I'm going to go ahead and just pull Rick Phelps in uh, for a moment here. And um, Rick, you were an EMS worker. Um, did you run into this situation with, with missing people when, when you were uh, an emergency service worker? Uh, absolutely, Lori. I was in law enforcement EMS both for about 24 years. And now I'm a 180 because I am the person that we were in fact, looking for, um, what I found is that uh, the things we did back then were were not even close to the things that should be done. Um, just like Chief Saunders says, it's a learning process, and he's done a wonderful job with Project Lifesaver. That's why I'm involved here locally with Project Lifesaver. My job is to go out and do speaking engagements to get people involved with Project Lifesaver. And my, the biggest thing that I try to uh, uh, bring to the table is uh, I know everybody has spoke already about how the family is, is in, you know, turmoil and, and scared to death when their, when their loved one wanders off. But you've got to realize that the patient is the same way. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, I know I, don't, I haven't wondered yet 
but I have wandered away from my wife in a store, and that alone scares me to death. So just walking away from my surroundings is is a horrible feeling. And uh, when these people leave a facility or a home, uh, what the family deals with, uh, the patient is going through probably ten times worse. And and uh, with Project Lifesaver, when these patients are found, uh, the officers and EMS need to know uh, how to deal with them and things like that. And that's mostly where I come in at, and I try to explain as a patient's point of view um, how to deal with these people. A lot of times the first thing they do is, is want to get the patient to the family member, and I think it's crucial that uh, just the opposite happens. The family member should come to them if possible because, you know, Putting these people in an ambulance or putting them in the back of a cruiser or in the front of a cruiser, all that is, is just uh, the routine that you must go through. Is, 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 is It's horrible for a patient. You know, they're scared, uh, they're panicked, and uh, they're not going to know anybody. And they see all these flashing lights and uniforms and things like that, and, and a bad situation just goes to worse. So uh, that's my deal with Project Lifesaver, and I'm so happy to be involved in this, and I can't uh, give enough kudos to uh, Chief Saunders and what he has accomplished with this program. Um, I was contacted about six or eight months ago here locally by the sheriff to get involved, and uh, I, I, I snatched that up in a minute, of course, and, and I can't say enough about this, uh, this project that they do. It's, it's, it's literally life-saving. Well, perfect name then. <laughs> That's for sure with it. Thank you, Rick, for for your insights. You always add add so much. Um, Chief Saunders, I'm going to go back to you again. And can you tell us um, why why you chose to um, place Project Lifesaver primarily in the public safety agencies, um, or do you see that expanding into into other areas uh, now that you've been around a while? Well, if you remember uh, when I first uh, alluded to it, uh, here, I was a cop. You know, I was doing searches. And as Rick would probably uh, agree, those are the people that are going to get called first. When mm-hmm. somebody goes missing, be they uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, or just a missing person, police, sheriff, they're going to be the first ones to respond. Uh, hence, we were doing a lot of the searches. So my focus was absolutely uh, towards helping the law enforcement officer and the agencies be able to resolve this situation quickly, efficiently, and, you know, uh, maybe it's not a good thing to say, but at a much less expense because when you start talking about doing search and rescue missions, the average search under normal circumstances without Project Lifesaver is about nine hours. Well, somebody's paying for that search, Lori. So mm-hmm. what is the cost? Well, the average cost is about $1,500 an hour. So now you do the math. Okay. Taxpayers are paying for those searches. So not only have you got a client, we call them clients, but a patient out here that's lost, a family that's in turmoil, but you're now using taxpayers' money that if you look at public safety agencies, they don't normally have budgets for search and rescue. So when they start doing search and rescue, that money is coming out of some other part of their budget, uh, maybe salaries, maybe equipment, uh, whatever. 
So if we could combine this and have some way of quickly and efficiently locating these people, not only would we save money, not only would we save manpower, but more importantly, we'd save lives and bring people home quickly and resolve the issue. So this is pretty much why I focused it towards law enforcement. Now, to answer the second part of your question, yes, we are seeing it start to branch out more. We're seeing assisted living homes that want to become part of Project Lifesaver and have what we, we refer to it as a closed cell where they manage their own patients, they have their own staff that are trained and equipped to use the radio tracking units to, to locate patients who may have wandered out of assisted living. We're seeing it in VA hospitals. Uh, we have a, a number of VA hospitals that now have become members of Project Lifesaver. So yes, you, the answer to your question, absolutely. It is, it is branching out more and more people that are involved with the care of Alzheimer's and dementia patients are finding that this this situation or problem, however you want to, to address it, is not going away. As the population expands, it's getting uh, larger and it needs to be addressed and addressed quickly. So we work with a number of different organizations in order to make that happen. Okay. Well, and that makes total sense. I mean, if, if uh, someone is lost, I, I would I would go to the emergency uh, professionals as well. But I, I can see where others would be interested in it um, to try to self-contain as well, if if that's at all if that's at all possible. Can you tell us, um, kind of in detail, you know, a call comes in. What what happens? How do, how does the process work? Well, depending on the agency now, I'm just going to give you an average uh, because every okay. one of them have little different ways they may do it. Uh, first, we, we go out and we enroll the patient. The officers interview the family, the caregivers. They also have you know contact with the patient. They uh, put take a personal history profile on the on the patient. They then you know work with the patient to place the transmitter transmitter either on the arm or on the ankle. Or they may have to come up with some other ingenious way of, of providing the transmitter to them. Now they, they've got contact, they know the family, they know the patient. They give the family a means of contact, either through the dispatcher or direct contact to a member of the or head of the search team. If the person becomes missing, they are instructed to immediately and I stress the word immediately, contact the agency by whatever means provided. Don't initiate a search yourself. Contact immediately. The team then responds to the area where they were last seen. They are tuning in a radio frequency that is emanating from that transmitter in an effort to locate or pick up and locate that signal. Once they pick up and locate that signal, they will then follow that signal to wherever that transmitter is. Hopefully it is still with the person on their arm or ankle. And every time you know we have responded, that has been the case. They then locate the person. Uh, and then they will either, as Rick said, they'll either bring the family to the location or they will have tips that we give them in our training classes 
on how to deal with this person and get them back to their home location or wherever it was they wandered from. And that's going to depend on the family situations. We have some families where it's just not possible for a family member to respond uh, and others where it is. So each, each case is individual and we handle it on its own merits. Okay. So when you're talking about these devices, can you tell us kind of what they look like and kind of size-wise, um, and then, of course, where people can get them? Well, they look like a watch without a face. Uh, okay. They are probably about the size of a large watch. They uh, come with a band, depending on what the person's preference is. It could be different colors. Uh, in fact, the case itself could be different colors. Inside that case is a radio transmitter. A radio transmitter sends a signal on a set frequency 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It never stops. Now, we don't monitor that signal unless the team is called in to search and locate the signal. That goes on for, depending on the type of transmitter the family has, for 30 days before the battery and band will be changed, or 60 days. What happens then is a representative of the organization will come to the house or they will make arrangements to meet the family. They will change the battery and band, check the transmitter, make sure it's still functioning the way it should. And as on the other side, it also gives it, you know, a rapport building measure between the organization and the family. They get to know each other. Uh, they, they exchange, you know, you know personal uh, remarks and information. And the representative gets to see how is the client doing. Uh, we used to have, and, and I'm sure Paul will allude to this, sometimes when we go to change a battery and band, we could almost predict if a person was going to wander and about when. Just by listening to what the family told us, and, and talking with the patient if possible. So those are the kind of things that happen. Wow, that's that's interesting. And that's got to be a relief that somebody else comes in. I, I love the idea of the rapport building. And, you know, sometimes it's just hard for people to change batteries, especially as we age with arthritis and things like that. That kind of stuff can get a little trickier than it used to be um, for us. Um, and so that's neat that, that you have um, set the program up in that fashion. Can you... Um, before I get into um, costs, I think what I'm going to do is go ahead and pull Paul in and um, ask him a couple of questions here as well. So let me see if I can find Paul. Um, now, Paul, you have um, utilized Project Lifesaver. Um, can you tell us in in your area um, how have you seen the program work? Has it? Uh, do you think it's beneficial to your community? Well, I think it's beneficial to any community. Um, first, as I'm sitting here listening to everybody, I'm, I'm, my head is just shaking, and I'm saying, yep, 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 with uh, <laughs> Mara's uh, six points. And then uh, um, every one of those uh, we run across daily. Um, and then with Rick's, the education part of it, um, that's something that uh, I teach. In fact, our uh, our new agencies, some throughout the country, and, and our teach our people, you know, we have to educate ourselves and stay on top of these things, um, particularly just to redirect um, many of our clients um, in the uh, 
mission that they've set themselves out on. Um, so all of that um, kind of plays into our education, educational uh, a part of it uh, also. Sure. What kind of response, uh, you know, when, when a family calls in, I would imagine they've got to be pretty panicked. Um, I, do they feel a, a sense of relief, though, knowing that this system is in place and that there is a process? Well, well they do, and they get that feeling of um, of that peace of mind when they call us and we put that transmitter on them from that point mm-hmm. on. They know that there's somebody there that has their back. Um, typically, when they do call, they are uh, quite hysterical. Um, and, of course, you know, times, uh, uh, many times the uh, caregiver, um, uh, the, the person, the client has wandered, and the uh, caregiver has kind of lost a little bit of uh, time there, and we're behind the eight ball as we get started. Um, in our training, we learn that uh, a typical person can walk four miles in one hour. So um, as uh, Chief Saunders says, we need to be notified immediately, and we try to stress that to the caregivers. And um, they know that the uh, national average in locating once we arrive on the scene is 30 minutes. So they have a, a great peace of mind to know that Project Lifesaver technology works. Wow. Now, one thing I was going to ask uh, the chief, and I didn't, but maybe you can answer this, is um, do you have problems, like if somebody wanders into big cement buildings, can you get, can the transmitters get through on that? Because I know even like with cell phones, it just stops, you know. And um, so does that preclude anything? Well, it, it does in a way. It uh, Again, with this technology, um, we are trained to listen for a, a certain sound, which is a chirp, and just by through process of elimination, through concrete buildings, through uh, power lines, through trees, through cars and bridges, um, to stay with that signal because deflection does happen. Um, and if uh, a lot of times with this you will uh, get the signal, then you may lose it. Then you go back to where you had it and you got it again, and you just kind of, but through process of elimination, stay with the strength of that signal, and it will lead you right to uh, the transmitter. Okay, okay. So um, in terms of, of your <clears throat> Of your group, do you know what the average time frame is? I, I believe uh, Chief Saunders had said normally within like 30 minutes um, you're able to locate somebody. Um, have you? What kind of success uh, ratio have you had, and in, in what kind of time frame? Well, we have a very good time frame. Sometimes our uh, our clients, again, uh, due to lack of notification and. Um, Chief Saunders hit on it uh, too that um, sometimes our notifications just aren't, uh, or rather that the um, caregiver um, is um, also, you know, maybe one step behind the client to, as far as uh, cognitive uh, goes, and, and um, they may not call us in in a certain period of time, but uh, typically we're within that 30-minute uh, time frame. We have some that uh, are within minutes and others that uh, go on for four hours, uh, as we had one on uh, Saturday morning. So um, it varies, uh, but a lot of it is due to lack of uh, notification by the caregiver uh, to us. Wow. Well, even four hours, like I said, for my friend, it was 30 days. 
And then the woman ended up in a hospital in a, in a totally different city, you know, an hour and a half away in a coma. And, um, you know, it was it was so frustrating and lack of communication. And I'm just so excited to hear um that there's a procedure and there's communication and there's rapport building and there's assistance and a and a process and then to hear you know um, 2,897 rescues I, I mean you know without fail that's that's a miracle in my eyes I mean that's just says so much I'm going to be doing a um, town hall meeting tomorrow where we're going to be talking about living with dementia and being out in a community and we're going to be uh, interviewing people that have dementia and then we're also going to be talking with police and fire because this is a big issue and I will definitely um, be uh, addressing and talking about Project Lifesaver because I would I would love to see this um, set up in our in all of our cities here in Minnesota and I'm not quite sure what all that will entail uh, for us to get get going um if it's a you know if we need legislation behind us or if departments can do this um you know on their own um but it definitely um i i it would just bring so much comfort so so much comfort um with this so well i thank you um paul was there anything else that you wanted to tell us about how it's working in your community well, again, I think uh, we have right now 155 clients. Um, 80 of those are Alzheimer's, um, a couple of uh, um, Down syndrome, and the rest are autistic uh, children or adults. But um, I think the biggest thing about this program is just the uh, the peace of mind that it brings the caregiver, that knowing that uh, if their loved one was to wander, that there's someone there that uh, has their back and uh, has proven time and again that um, they will be found. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for for being able to join us here. I'm going to go ahead and pull in uh, Michael Ellenbogen because I know that he um, has some other commitments that he needs to run to. Michael, what are your thoughts when you hear about Project Lifesavers? Is this something that you were aware of prior to this uh, prior to this show? Michael, are you with us? Oh, can you hear me now? Up, oh, we can hear you now. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Yep. We could do it. I guess it is. We could do it. We could do a Verizon commercial now. <laughs> we can hear you now. So, um, yeah. What are What are your thoughts? Are, were you aware of Project Lifesaver before this show? And no, I was not, Lori. And I have to tell you, I, I have to commend uh, Chief Saunders for what he has created there. Actually, this is something that I have been pushing for probably about two years now here locally. Uh, I believe that things like this need to happen at a government level because I think that's the only way things will progress. And uh, I'm very impressed with the system. In fact, I want to do further checking to understand the technology behind this. Uh, of course, being a technology person myself, uh, but I, I think it's really great that they can actually track people down quickly, and uh, it also involves a lot of the people in the community, which I think is most helpful. Mm-hmm. I agree. When I come out to um, Pennsylvania, I, I'm going to add this onto my list of kind of grassroots academic um, models of, of efforts out there in dementia 
um, because it's so it, it's just so important. And when you're looking at the the comfort that it can give, um, the the time in which um, the rescues can happen, and and then the reduction in cost is is massive. And we haven't really gotten to that, but I mean. You know, I know it's not fifteen hundred dollars an hour. <laughs> you know, so um, that's that puts a pretty big uh, chunk in anybody's in anybody's budget. Um, you know, especially when it's not planned. And I, you know, you wonder how many times people um, go exploring or wander off, whatever you want to call it, um, that aren't reported. And what that does to a family in terms of of the panic and trying to, you know, pull in their own people and do their own calling. And uh, I I just, I remember when my daughter was young and we thought she was missing and she actually, we had just moved into a house, she fell asleep behind a mattress in the basement. And um, we were scared to death. We were absolutely scared to death. And couldn't find her and, you know, started knocking on the doors and and it was just the most horrible, horrible feeling you could ever imagine. Um, And I don't care if it's a a child or an adult, when someone is missing, especially in the type of world we live in today, um, it it ages you (laughs) and stresses you um, to beat the band. So, yeah, I I think Project Lifesaver is definitely something that more people need to know about, uh, look at seriously in terms of incorporating a plan. and 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 this is just a nice way to educate not only um the public but also our emergency professionals as well um in terms of how to deal you know with with dementia because it it does have its different tricks um any any questions that you want to pose to anybody michael well i would like to to me, the big thing on my mind was really the pricing structure on mm-hmm. this, uh, because again, uh, one of the problems that I've seen is, is I have had the luxury to test many different GPSs around. Uh, the problem that always tends to lie is a lot of people can't afford those products due to the cost. Uh, while the products may cost, you know, maybe only a couple hundred dollars, it's the monthly service that tends to be the real kicker for most families that makes it unaffordable. Uh, that's correct. Well, why don't we? Um, I'm going to hold on that for just a second because I've got someone here who's called in, um, but I definitely want to get to that topic of price. So I'm going to go ahead and put you on hold, and I'm going to pull in. We've got a caller at uh, from a 416 number. You're live and and on the air. Did you want to, to pose a question or make a comment? Sure. It's uh, Mark Lippman calling from the Toronto, Canada area. Um, I'm a paramedic, and uh, I've developed a brand new product that I think uh, will really help within the um, within the uh, the Alzheimer's uh, industry. It's uh, called Code for Armor, and how it works is it's a uh, a silicone band that, with a smartphone, uh, first responders can tap the band and instantaneously now get information on a patient. So when you have someone who may be uh, confused, not knowing where they are or maybe unconscious or unresponsive after a seizure or in a post-ictal state, the first responders now can easily get information on that patient, like next of kin, um, where they belong, phone numbers, medical information, medications that they're on, that type of thing. Okay, so so this is like, because um, there's the USB bracelets that are out there where you can download information, but this has almost like a bump effect 
um, when you bump phones and can share information. Is that how that works? Well, not exactly. Um, with the USB, you actually need to have a computer in order to download the information. Uh, when a first responder comes on scene of a patient that's wearing our particular band, all they need to do is take their smartphone and tap the band, and now that information gets ported, imported right to the, uh, to the cell phone of the first responder. So they have the information right there um, at their fingertips so they can act on it uh, immediately. Okay, wonderful. Well, and I think um, I think with uh, your product and the the USB, I mean, people are always you know talking about ID um, bracelets and how do how do these right. work? Um, I, you know, I think that that's just uh, crucial for people to to not only um, purchase and wear, um, not, and not just for the person with dementia, but their care partners need to be wearing these as well because if something happens to them. People need to know that there's someone else that they're caring for um, that's dependent on them. And, you know, yeah. that seems to be missing in the equation a lot of times. Um, but this really is a, a partnership aspect. Um, uh, how do people... So, um, uh, mm-hmm. No, I was just Go saying, ahead, listening to, uh, yeah, listening to um, the other fellows that were talking about um, about price and cost, and I know that they were... I caught the back end of uh, one of the fellows speaking about a GPS uh, factor um, um, that it could cost uh, a lot of money to do that. And we're actually working on the technology where uh, when someone taps the band, if they subscribe to a GPS function of the band, that the uh, the phone itself sends off a GPS location and uh, and now they can get an email as to where the person is when they got tapped. So it becomes a very inexpensive way of... Uh, of getting a GPS signal on somebody versus uh, the more expensive uh, $100 plus bands that are out there. Okay, and can you yeah, tell us what what price it would be on yours and where people can can get uh, the band if they're interested? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the band itself is uh, $19.99, and um, the service or subscription fee is $3 a month or $36 a year, so less than a latte a month. And that protects uh, you, your family, your friends uh, for the uh, for the band. And they can get it uh, through our website, which is triple uh, W C O D E. So code the number four, and then A R M O U R dot com. Okay, wonderful. And they can register well, for the band. Okay, so code for armor dot com, and that sounds mm-hmm. uh, that sounds great. So then, do they go on to the the internet and then just download it? Have like a, a password code or something? Since there's not a a USB on this band, um, I would imagine they have to input it someplace. The, the right when they go when they uh, yeah when they get their band, um, they'll be instructed to go on to our website. They'll um, punch an identification code that's I- embedded into the uh, the back of the band. It's a silicone band. And when they punch in that code, then they'll have different fields of information, fields that they can fill in their own personal information, their next of kin, their medical history, medications they may be taking, uh, phone numbers, addresses, that type of thing. And then it sits on our um, our secure data center. And when someone taps the band, the uh, information goes from the data center right to the uh, smartphone that's tapped, and they instantaneously get that information. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for calling in and sharing that information with us. We appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, letting me call in. Sure, um, Chief Saunders. <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to you. 
And um, now, with your system, um, do you have, um, is there data on people, or you don't really need that because you're dealing with somebody who already knows the individual when they're reported missing? No, we don't have data because they do already know the person. Uh, they've called, received a call on that particular person, and each agency already has a personal profile about the person, including their picture, medications, where they have, have they wandered before. In other words, it's almost a personal history on them. Um, okay. So no, it, and you have to remember something else. While you we're transmitting a radio signal, which takes power, you know, mm -hmm. uh, where in listening to, to what he was talking about, and I think it's a wonderful, wonderful idea, uh, but that's after they're located. Uh, mm -hmm. Now we're talking about locating them, and it takes power to push that signal. So you've got to have a battery in there that's going to last, you know, 30 or 60 days, however long the uh, transmitter is designed for. So those are the kind of things that are that, uh differentiate what we do from the data uh, import type situation. Okay, okay. Um, well, that's uh, that's good to know because, uh, you know, in, we do a lot of um, memory cafes and um, and just on social media, I'm sure um, Michael and Harry and, and Rick would all say this is a topic that comes up in terms of ID um, bracelets or necklaces or, you know, what should people use and you know, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, you know, for people when it when it comes to this. Can you share with us uh, the cost um, for Project Lifesaver for an individual to be to be part of your program? Sure. Now, when I when I tell you these costs, you have to understand that each agency is going to do this differently. Some may charge nothing at all for anything. Uh, I think Paul, you might fall into that category or close to it. Uh, but just for the transmitter itself, it's $300, and that comes with a year supply of the batteries and bands which go with it. Now, an agency may ask for a deposit. They may not. They may charge you a small monthly fee. The only caveat we put on it is they cannot charge over $25 per month to maintain this uh, transmitter in the field. Um, most of the agencies we deal with, they either have it within their budget or they have funds that they can tap uh, or they get in partnership with a, uh, a public-private type situation to raise funds to support it. So it covers the gamut from zero cost to the client to you know, maybe a deposit for the transmitter and maybe up to $25 a month or somewhere in between. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. I'm going to go ahead and uh, pull Harry Urban in because we haven't heard from Harry. Um, and Harry, Harry always has some questions asked. So, Harry, Harry, what do you think about all this? I, uh, I'm very sensitive to this uh, boy living with this disease for 10 years. Uh I uh, I can be sitting in my living room looking outside, and it's a nice it's a nice beautiful sunny day, and I want to uh, I think to myself I just want to walk outside and see what it's like, and I walk outside and uh, for some unknown reason 
uh, I might be walking up the street, and I could be within a block of my house, and all of a sudden I'm lost. Okay, I can't. I can't remember how to get home. So now I I, I start trying to find myself, and uh, and trying to find myself and get home. And that that's where I start to wonder. Now, that doesn't make me a criminal. I I get very sense. I get very sensitive to to the idea of, of, of me being tracked. Um, I'm not a criminal. I, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, the the barn door was left open and I walked through it. That doesn't make me a bad person. Now, I, I think Project Lifesaver, I think that's a wonderful project. I, I, think, that's, I think that's super, but it's after, after the fact, again. Um, now... Once you find me, that's only half the battle, okay? Once you track me down and find me, how do you handle me? Now, in my eyes, that's where the real problems come into. That's where the training has to be done, and I'm sure it does. Um, because once you find me, you're going to have a hard time if if you – I I think Rick mentioned it. If you, if you try to put uh, – if you think I'm getting uh, – uh, out of hand or anything, and you try to put handcuffs in me, put me in a cruiser, uh, you know, things like that, that's going to compound the problem even more. And the whole situation started because of of my disease and my desire. I just want to walk outside. And that, that kind of that bothers me that, that we even have to have a system like this. Like, you know, why aren't we... Why aren't we looking at more preventing type issues? Now, I know we have to have uh, the what if happens scenario. And, and this is a wonderful what if I walk off and I get lost and so forth and so on. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just so sensitive to, to this that I don't want to be, I don't want to be confined I don't want to. I don't want to be like I'm being tracked all the time. Uh, I honestly did not been wrong in my mind. I have this disease, and that's it. Okay. So, um, Chief, I'm just going to throw back to you. What What are your thoughts from what what Harry is saying? Um, I, well, I know the I, I know the goal has. is. Mm-hmm. I think he has some valid points, and that's why, you know, in our training, uh, he he made a statement that we tell our people all the time, you know, once you locate them, that's only half the situation. Now you've got to interact with them. One of the things that helps is the interaction prior to an incident ever happening, and that is the officers visiting the home, getting to know the person, getting to know the family, so that it, it doesn't turn out to be a uh, what Harry alluded to as feeling like a criminal. Uh, you know, I think the other the other side of the coin is, and I understand that nobody wants to be tracked, but when you when you look at the alternatives that could happen, you know, uh, what else can you do? I mean, it's it comes down to. Being able to locate the person if they if they do become missing, handling handling them in such a way that they don't feel like they're a criminal, uh, 
And one of the things that, that I would like to comment on that we've had a lot of success with, uh, and that is the officers being in uniform approaching the person as long as they approach them in the right way. You know, you don't approach them in a criminalistic manner. Um, you use some techniques that, that I'm sure Mara will talk about and that we teach on uh, approaching and having a social interaction and even the use of, de of uh, deflection or diversion if necessary. Very, very seldom do we have any complications. Uh, in fact, I can't think of any that I've been advised of. Uh, I tell the story I used to have when uh, I was actively out doing the program. I had a Golden Gloves champion that I had to locate several times. And do you, you know I handled him in a, in a very cautious manner because I did not want any problems and I wanted to return him home safely. So those are things that we are sensitive to. We teach those in our course. In fact, Paul alluded to it. Paul is one of our national instructors. Um, we are sensitive to it. We know that just because a person has Alzheimer's doesn't mean they don't have feelings. They don't have opinions. And dealing with those is, is a very big part of the program. No, it's not that we just give these people the equipment and throw a tracking device on somebody and say, okay, now if they go missing, you go find them. As Harry said, that's only part of it. Uh, there is a, a method, there are procedures, uh, and they have to learn these when they go into the field. What is Alzheimer's? Uh, how do you understand it? How do you deal with a person if, uh, when you approach them? Uh, and you learn some from the family, too, about things to not to say or not to do. Uh, we've had situations where we knew that uh, because of a person's background, uh, approaching in uniform was not the wisest thing to do. So that is part of their personal profile, and these uh, people that are doing the program know that. And they know that you know a uniformed officer is not the, the best approach where in many, many situations is, it works out just fine. So yes, we are sensitive to it. Harry, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a, that is one of the differentiating uh, differences uh, between Project Lifesaver and, and some of these devices that are out there that uh, all they're meant to do is track somebody. So thank you for that. You know, we have a we have a question from uh, someone in our audience, uh, Rosalmont, which is great. She says, you know, prisoners wear something like this on their ankles for free. Why the heck can't our health insurance or government pay this to help people live safely? And again, I, I know Harry's opposed to this, but for those that that want this, um, you know, they've been taxpayers all their life. They haven't harmed anybody, you know, and this is a, a, a similar tool that could be used um, in a very, very positive fashion and, um, you know, and, and isn't. I mean, I know in some cases you said it, it's free, but what would we have to do, um, Chief, to get this um, to get this covered either by insurance or by our government, what would you what would you recommend? If, uh, if pressure on the politicians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, okay. Pressure on the politicians. Uh, I will say that in the past almost four years, 
the Bureau of Justice Administration, uh, part of the Department of Justice, has provided some funding to us to establish agencies. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, we have almost 200 agencies we have been able to fund to get them started, and we just had a renewal where we're going to be able to do 27 more agencies to get them started and provide them you know, a couple of the transmitters at no cost. Uh, but I think what it's going to come down to is letting the politicians know that we want this, that it is desirable, and again, you know, uh, referring back to something Harry said, it is voluntary. You know, nobody is, is forced into the program, nor do they have to stay if they choose not to. And it's it's not a 24-hour monitoring system. Um, and we could talk about the differences in the technology. You talked about the tracking of the prisoners. Well, that's a GPS technology. It is true that we do have some GPS technology we offer. Uh, we find that radio tracking, the use of radio frequency, is the most reliable, uh, tends to work 100% of the time, whereas in many instances GPS does not. So this is why we kind of, in our forefront, is the what we call the RF technology. But it's going to take pressure. We Listen, I have been in the halls of Congress more than I can tell you to try to get funding to uh, provide this to agencies and provide it to the citizens. Uh, but it's going to take more than just me. It's going to take uh -huh. the citizens going to their law enforcement or their fire departments and saying, we want this, we want to help you lobby our legislators to get it. Because uh -huh. when you break it down, it is cheaper and let's face it, the bean counters are going to be looking at it from one point of view, and you've got to give them something to hang their hat on. It's cheaper to yep. do a search this way than it is to do it in what we call the old-fashioned way where you have a lot of people, a lot of time, and a lot of expense. Okay. Um, I'm going to um, just pull Michael in because I think he has a question for you. Michael, you wanted to, to ask a question to Chief Saunders, I believe? Well, I, I just loved what that lady had said uh, about free. We give these things to prisoners, but yet the people who are your average citizen who needs to help and something like that doesn't get that. And a light bulb went off in my head because it, it, it's so true. I can't understand why we don't do that as a government, you know, to be able to provide it. And I'm not saying that it should be totally free, but if the government was to take this on, that would really be able to bring down the cost substantially to the point that I, I could see a $5 per month cost to everybody if, you know, they held the systems and everything else. Because, again, I understand the electronics and things and the cost factor behind things. It would be just something that could be, to me, wonderful if it could even be tied into the 911 system that they do have a database with all the information about the individual. Uh, and... You know, unfortunately, I don't feel like Harry does. You know, we do have the freedom to do this or to not do this, but I do believe what you are doing is fabulous. You know, I wish it was an easier way for people to know when we are going to wander and when we're not, but unfortunately, you know, there, there's no way of doing it, and I think this is probably the best option that exists out there for people like us. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I feel the same way you do. Uh, that's one of the reasons I established this as a nonprofit organization. Uh, I've been asked many times, well, why didn't you make it a for-profit organization? 
because then I don't feel like we are doing a the mission of serving the, the, the people for the reasons that we should be doing it. Um, I would love to see, you know, more government funding. We could do so much with so little for so many. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting. Um, I, I'm definitely going to, um, you know, hook everybody up so that they can uh, talk offline um, and maybe do some brainstorming in terms of, you know, how do we get this pushed for, you know, further um, along. This might be something even for Mara and I with our uh, the National Dementia Alliance program to bring up with that group. Um, I could see this being very, very beneficial uh, to them. I mean, we've got another caller on the line, so I'm going to go ahead and pull somebody in from a 201 number. You are live and on the air. Did you have a question or comment? Hi, Lori. This share? is Michelle DeSocio. Oh, hi, Michelle. How are you doing? Hi, everybody. Um, I do have a, a comment. My mom, as most of you know, was placed very early at her choice, age 58. She was very ambulatory. And the first facility she was in, they put a, they stopped a bracelet on her, which if she came within a few feet of the doors, boom, they locked up. My first feeling, I didn't like it. But they sat down, they explained it to myself, my sister, and my mother. She was included in the conversation about safety. And we decided to put it on her ankle. His mom was very, at the time, uh, conscious. So she wore it on her ankle, and we had peace. We didn't have to worry. We missed the early signs of mom getting lost. And having the patient involved and understanding why, I think, goes a long way. Yep. Um, Chief Saunders, I'm just going to pull you back in again and see if you have any any comments um, regarding Michelle's comments. I agree 110 uh, percent, and that's one of the reasons that our uh, organizations are taught. When you go to the uh, the potential client's home or wherever they are located, yes, you bring them into the conversation. Uh, because it goes a long way in getting to know each other and understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it. You know, listen, I have gone and done interviews and I've gotten reports from the field where uh, officers and deputies have done interviews and and the potential client looked right at him and said, yeah, I absolutely need this and I understand what it's for. So, you know, those are the kind of things that, that make you feel good about what you're doing. Uh along with, you know, being able to bring them home. But, yes, I agree with, with her, um, even 120%. They need to know and they need to understand, if possible, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one I of the things... Say, that they... yes. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sure the facility gets paid for Medicaid for this. I don't think they do it for free. We, yeah, we are I... after actually working on Medicaid, uh, Medicaid is a very complicated situation. Um, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because when we work with Medicaid, everybody thinks that that's a national-type umbrella that all you got to do is go to the Medicaid people and say, would you cover this, and it's done, but it doesn't work that way. You've got to go <laughs> to each individual state through a number of hoops and obstacles uh, to get this get this stuff approved 
And if anything gets in the way, it, if it sits on somebody's desk for a while, then that's what happens. It sits on the desk. So we are working with several states right now to, to try to get it approved. Uh, but I think, and there's some other things we're trying to do too, to uh, to get funding so we can reduce or eliminate the cost to the individuals. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Chief, I have a question for you. Did um, Were you personally touched by the disease at all? I, I'm kind of interested in what sparked your interest to get this going. Um, did you have a family member or a loved one? With, uh, with no, dementia? I did not. Okay. No. Okay. Uh, my first you know, exposure was having to search for those that were missing. But I think what touched me more, and it was uh, one of the panelists alluded to it not too long ago, I think it was Paul, about the anxiety of the family, you know, and, and dealing with the families. Because as a commander, you know, I was right there with the families in quite a number of the situations. And, you know, the worst thing in the world that I've ever had to do was either notify the family that we could not find the subject, we were going to have to suspend the search, or even worse, yes, I'm sorry we have located them, however. Uh, and after you do that a couple of times, you know, it makes a real impression on you, and uh, I just didn't care to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's got to be awfully, awfully tough. Um well, this has just been such a fascinating conversation, and I appreciate uh, everyone who's who has been uh, calling in and and with us here. I want to talk, uh, Chief, though, about you know Project Lifesaver has kind of areas um, you know that they they work in, and can can someone get protection um, in an area that isn't isn't a member of Project Lifesaver? If that makes sense, and I'm probably not stating that really clearly because I I don't know the technology as well as you do. So maybe if you can rephrase that so it makes sense to our audience on on how your areas work and um, how people can partake in it. Yeah, I mean, well, there's several ways. If, if the agency is a Project Lifesaver member, and it's easy to find out, you can go to our website, projectlifesaver.org, and click on the tab, Where Are We?, uh, Type in your zip code, and it'll tell you the closest agency of whether your agency is a member. If they're not, I think the first thing you do is call them and ask them why not, uh, because it's not that hard to gain membership. Uh, and we will, in fact, even help you with some of the things that you, you may be able to do to convince the agency to come on board. Secondly, if, it, if they're in an area that's not covered by Project Lifesaver, I made reference a short time ago that we do have some devices that utilize GPS. Uh, We have a device that is called PAL, which is an acronym for Protect and Locate. This is a a wristwatch type device. It actually functions as a wristwatch. Uh, It does lock on so that it has to be taken off by the caregiver with a tool. And it utilizes the GPS GSM system, which is actually uh, GPS assisted through the cellular phone network. Uh, The thing that we like about this particular system is it also has an RF function uh, where you can set a safe zone around the receiver, which is about the size of an iPhone that you can carry with you. And if the person 
walks out of the uh, distance that you have set, it sets off an alarm on that receiver, uh, a, a beeping, loud beeping, and a red light flashing so that you know this person has gone outside of that zone. And it'll then come up and give you an address that they are close to. Now, if you want to track them even closer, you can go on your smartphone or have it set up so your smartphone will come back and tell you. You can go on there and it'll bring up a Google map and show you where that uh, device is located. Now, as was discussed earlier, yes, that has a monthly service charge because it works through the cell phone network. And I think we all know that when you work through the cell phone network, you're going to pay the cell phone people. So, <laughs> and But we are trying to bring that price down. We are working on that now, and I hope in the next couple of weeks we're going to have an announcement about being able to bring that monthly service charge down. So, yeah, yes, we do realize there's people that are not in PLI areas that need help, need protection, and that's why we did our research and came up with this particular technology to help those uh, particular people. But there again, my preference, get your agency to join Project Lifesaver, get them trained, because not only does it give them the knowledge to use the technology and conduct the program, but it's going to go a long way in giving them the knowledge on the people they are going to be interacting with and people that are in their community. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that is wonderful. I'm going to go ahead and, and pull Mara back into the conversation here. Um, Mara, uh, can you talk to us a little bit? You know what? I've got one other person, and then I'm going to pull you in here, Mara. I didn't see this person here. We've got somebody from a 239 number, and I just want to make sure that we uh, are including our audience. Um, 239 number, um, you are live and on the air. Did you have a question or a comment? Am I on? Yep, you're you're live. Mm-hmm. And who is this? Oh, Lord, Mara. I we're having a oh, thunderstorm out here, so I had to call back in. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, then you yeah, I, you were the one I was going to call in anyway. So I didn't I didn't have your name down, so I I didn't post numbers. I wanted to have you go over um, a little bit about um, the risks of wandering, and you've developed a, a kind of a safety checklist and how uh, how that works. Absolutely. And, um, you know, first of all, Lori, I completely agree um, that we need to pull this into our uh, work at the now level with the Dementia Action Alliance and, you know, Michael's comments and Rick's and Harry's and, and certainly Chief Saunders. And this has been such a powerful conversation. And, and I will get into those um, safety checklists really quick. But, Lori, I just wanted to commend you for a second because I think we're this this open and honest dialogue is doing a lot to dispel some of the misconceptions about this. And there's a couple I can think of really quick. And and I think the most important one is about, you know, that this is not an adversarial relationship with the law enforcement and the first responders. And I worked with so many families over the years that were really hesitant to admit that this was happening at home. If it's a spouse that's caring for their husband or their wife, I think the greatest fear was that maybe this would mean a placement outside the home. If it was an adult child, unfortunately, I saw so many families feeling like it was an indictment of their ability as a caregiver if this was happening. And we're really embarrassed to admit that that their loved one that they were keeping such a close eye on somehow wandered off. And 
Um, I think that this is just a really wonderful, eye-opening conversation about the fact that, you know, the law enforcement and the first responders aren't there to take your loved one away from home. It's quite the opposite. They're trying to help you keep them there longer and more safely. And I think these comments were right on about dispelling some rumors about or feelings about maybe potentially the criminalization of our loved ones because they wander in. Now, Paul and Chief Saunders may disagree with this assessment on my part, and I don't want them to get teased at work, but I hope you hear the tenderheartedness with which they approach this and all of the training and the ongoing education that they're getting, not only about the disease process, which we know is super general, but about your loved ones specifically, who they are as a person, what's important to them, what's still familiar to them, what their routines are when they did wander, where did they go and why, medically what's gone with them. You know, it's it's really quite the opposite. They're not there to antagonize and are, in fact, especially trained to de-escalate um, the behaviors in your loved one because they wandered in the first place, and I can't remember if it was Rick or Harry that said it, there's already an going on. And there's already enough um, trepidation about being in an unfamiliar environment, maybe. And I love that this whole program doesn't exist to prevent people from checking the mail or feeling on their face or you know, the warmth of the sun on skin. This isn't about restricting any movement. It's about finding them faster when they're lost, and, and that matters a ton. And they need to yeah. sell the myth that people can't afford it because in a lot of times, like Chief Saunders said, there isn't any cost or it's minimal to the families, but we've got to get it out there in more places. So, you know, Lori, this is just, I think, huge. Not only did people not know about the program, but I think people didn't really quite understand how it worked or how it might support them in their efforts to keep their loved ones at home safely. And this is huge. Yeah, definitely. Can you can you talk about your wandering um, safety checklist? Yeah, absolutely. And this is those things that I encourage people to rip out of the book. Um, and if you don't have it, just write it down right now for free. So you got a pencil and a paper handy. Here's some things to think about right quick. Easy, inexpensive solutions to help decrease the risk of this happening at home. Um, one of them is to consider, and there's only about eight or so, and I'll go quickly. One of them is installing wandering prevention or reduction locks, such as deadbolts that require a key, locks on doors, windows, and gates that have to be opened with a key. And again, I want to go back to what Harry said, and this is where caregivers and and living with Alzheimer's need to use their best judgment. I'm talking about people that are in mid or late stages of the disease process to the point where where disease deficits in regard to judgment may put them in a potentially unsafe situation. You know, Harry, Harry is certainly not an example of that, but somebody that, that you know may not have the ability to decide when to cross the street or how to dress appropriately if they're outside inclement weather for a long period of time or may not know how to return to the place that they, they went when they got back. So um, wandering prevention locks, um, alarms. There are alarm systems out there that can be installed at home um, for a fee, or you know you can go style. You know we've all seen those uh, movies on on TV where somebody living alone decides to string bells on the windows or things like that. So it doesn't always have to be expensive, but what you're looking for here is something that makes a noise that will alert you if high risk egresses are breached. So maybe you don't care about the front door. Maybe it's fine for your loved one to go out the back door in your fenced yard and enjoy the day. But what you'd really rather they didn't do is go out through the basement or go to the door that leads from the kitchen to the garage and try to get that car out. 
So you can decide exactly how and when to utilize these things. Another really easy one is to disguise the exits. And for areas that you do think are a little bit higher risk, there's all kinds of things you can do to camouflage them, from murals you can buy at Home Depot, even hanging your current artwork over a doorway or excuse me, over a door, so it kind of disguises that the door there. Rearranging your furniture and putting a bookcase in front of some of the doors, maybe that you don't utilize and are not required for fire and life safety exits, but maybe would help you be a little bit better at managing when your loved one is leaving your home. There are all kinds of specialty catalogs and websites that for specific products for home safety, um, but a lot of these things, like I said, are free. And one of the things we do want to do um, is make it really easy for somebody to find a safe place to walk around um, and make sure that if you have some outdoor areas, what can you do to make that a little bit safer and more self-contained for your loved one? And make sure that you've got a nice area for them to walk in the house. And what I mean by that is if there is pacing, uh, if pacing behaviors are prevalent and prevalent already, then we need to have some trip hazards removed. Make sure that you've got a circular path. Maybe there's plenty of room for somebody to be able to walk around and go from one area of the home to another safely without the risk of tripping on throw rugs or having to turn sideways to get around end tables and lamps, and that they've got a pretty safe path for them to navigate on their own. Um, the other thing to think about is maybe just putting a simple piece of fabric or a cloth um, secured with a rubber band around your doorknob that will kind of disguise it a little bit and make it sometimes a little harder or more slippery for people to open. Um, the other thing um, that's probably something that you want to think about is the car keys. Um, wandering is only part of this, and heaven knows it's difficult when people elope on foot that maybe aren't safe to be out on their own, but what we definitely want to do is secure those keys if you feel like someone may have a tendency to drive that's unsafe, do so. It's really also important, and I always coach people, to keep an emergency activity kit handy. And what that means is items, sounds, sights, smells that comfort your loved one when they're in an agitated state. When you're in the middle of dealing with these behaviors, you don't have time to go fish for the picture of you at your wedding with them or the picture of them and their parents or a picture of them outside their office at a moment that they were really proud of. you got to have that stuff handy. So in a little plastic bin somewhere where you can find it and get it really easily, again, favorite sounds if there's music and favorite songs that they love, favorite smells. Um, these days you can get aromatherapy and room sprays in almost every configuration you want. And if it's the smell of the ocean or apple pie or whatever it is that creates that feeling of calm and comfort and home, have that in there. Something um, for them to look at um, uh, visually, we talked about pictures or photos that are of a personal nature that help them reminisce, even something to touch, um, something soft or tactile that they can do is excellent. And having those things ready to go before we meet them, I think, is critical. And likewise, um, Chief Saunders, and one of the reasons I volunteer and highly recommend Project Lifesaver and, in fact, collaborate with them in the training and education of some of the officers involved, is I'm so happy that they take the care and attention they do to create the personal profile of their loved ones, of your loved ones, enroll them in the program. But even before you consider doing that at your home for the person that you have, you should have some of that information on hand already. So part of preparing your home and making it safer 
is putting a list together. Where Has your loved one done any exit seeking or wandering before? So what were the triggers? What was happening at home before it occurred? When you found them, where were they? And what was their motivation? What were they trying to do? And making sure that you've got a current picture handy. You know, again, it's one of those things that when that emergency occurs, the last thing you want to be doing is flipping through all your old photo albums and in the bottom shelf of your bookcase trying to find the most recent picture of your husband or your mom. So home safety, it kind of bleeds into personal safety here as you think a little bit about what items may come from and in an emergency, what information you most quickly want to communicate with emergency medical services and law enforcement. And the key here is have it ready before you need. Okay. Well, that's uh that's a great, great information. Um, Harry, I'm just looking at the chat box here, and, and um, Harry was just saying, you know, he just doesn't want to live out um, the rest of his life under house arrest. Um, yeah. And there's got to be some way to have a compromise um, or a different ap- approach. And, and maybe part of it is just the mindset that um, this is a safety issue. Harry, I'm I'm just curious, and I'm going to pull you into the conversation here um, because I, I think this is important. I don't think you're alone in terms of of um, feeling the way that you feel um, with this. Um, have you and Hazel talked about um, using you know GPS or tracking systems? And and what is her feeling as a caregiver, as your wife? Well. Absolutely. We we talk about this all the time, uh, Lloyd. Now, you, you have to realize that that my safety has to come first before my feelings. Okay, mm-hmm. now, uh, some, sometimes it takes a little bit more to keep me safe. Like, like as, as an example, uh, when I had to stop driving, a, a lot of people that, that can't drive anymore, they... Uh, uh, they get very upset about that, but it's a safety issue, and I can understand that. Now, when it comes to wondering, um, I can I can understand that too. But you also have to understand that we have lost so much. Mm-hmm. We have sacrificed so much, and um, when it comes down to the the mentality of of us uh, being locked up away. Uh, maybe a different terminology, a different approach to how how that's how that's explained. Maybe that's the maybe that's the catch-all. Maybe a more general way of explaining tracking systems and things like that 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 uh, that don't get us upset. That 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 makes us feel like we're some kind of an animal that needs to be trapped and things like that. And, that I mean, I, I have such a, I have such a, uh, a, a problem with that that it's, it's, it overcomes me at times. Now, the, the suggestions that Mara was, was saying uh, it, is, is wonderful. I mean, that's, I think that's a path we have to explore more. I know we need, I know we need all these other safety. I know we need the tracking devices and things like that. But um, we have to come up with better ways that that prevent us from wandering without giving us the impression that we're being confined, that we're under house arrest. Now, I use those words. I use those words uh, more like a shock factor 
because people stop and listen to what I'm saying when I say that kind of stuff. But when you break it down into it, um, with with me wearing some kind of a monitor and stuff like that, it is house arrest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know, there's, um, you know, there's just so many different systems out there. Harry, do you use, because uh, I, I thought you guys, you were using this, but maybe it wasn't you, on on your phone where it says if you go, you know, kind of puts an invisible kind of gate up. Are, are you and Hazel using that one? Yeah, on on my on my cell phone that it's mandatory that I carry around with me that I don't understand how to use. But there's an app on it, uh, Unis Tactus, that um, that sets up a uh, a barrier that when I when I go outside that barrier, Hazel gets an email or some kind of alert saying that I'm outside that area, and it it uh, it gives you a uh, it pinpoints that where I left that radius at. And uh, I believe uh, I believe talking to the people that wrote the app, I, I believe that uh, she can also go on the Internet on a website that constantly tracks that signal at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, it's not, it, it's not going to find me, but it, it's going to alert her that um, I did go outside that area that I am lost. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you're and you're comfortable using that type of system that tracks you. I, I know a lot uh, of us have a, have a problem kind of with the Big Brother syndrome, and, and uh, it's kind of it's kind of spooky because will things be misused, um, and how are how are people viewing viewing things? And and there's a lot of that stuff. I mean, people put it, putting them on cars. Insurance companies are putting them on cars to check how we're driving and. Um, you know, there's cameras all over the place um, that that catches everything we're doing if we know it or not. And so I think there's a lot more going on than sometimes we even even realize um, with this. And I, I, you know, I was glad to hear that you were saying that you, even though this is a very emotional topic for you, you you also understand that safety has to come first. But with with that, um, can it be in a in a more dignified fashion? And again, this is kind of, um, to me, a similar situation wrapped into, you know, the myths and everything and the stigmas um, attached to the disease. This brings with it um, some stigmas as well that that have to be dealt with and talked about different. And and maybe, like you said, using different terminology will help in the future with that. So I really... um, I, you know, I really appreciate you bringing um, this side up, Perry, because it is important, and and that's one one of the things that's so nice about you. You're 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 just very honest. Um, all all three of you are, Rick and and Harry and Michael are um, just incredible in in bring things to light that that need to be dealt with, no matter how um, good something is. There's always room for for improvement, and so. Again, I I thank you um, very much for that. I'm going to ask Michael if he has any last uh, comments that you want to um, want to bring in at all. No, Lori, I have to tell you this was a very very informative show for me, and I look forward to sharing much of what I have learned here with the uh, people here in Pennsylvania, especially at the state level, which is something that's 
being looked at at this point in time uh, for doing some similar program. So I, I, the, this, the timing couldn't have not been better. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for participating in the show. I really, really appreciate your input as well, Michael. Well, thank you for having me, Lori. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pull Paul in. We haven't heard from you for a while. Paul, is there anything that we've missed that you think uh, needs to be recapped or um, or that we didn't cover yet? Well, I think uh, for me, in dealing with the uh, clients and their families, um, one of the biggest things that, that I try to stress um, uh, to our people is, you know, try to find the things that um, are going to trigger uh, good thoughts with our clients. Um, you know, Harry talked about um, feeling um, under house arrest. And we have uh, one guy that uh, we call our frequent flyer that wanders a lot and and uh, he gets very, very, very upset with us. I mean, we get him uh, in the car after talking him down, trying to redirect um, his thought patterns just by talking about the weather or talking about cars that pass by or just find something. It may sometimes take 15 minutes to find the right word that just turns him off and Mm -hmm. takes him down to where he will, uh, uh, you know, be a little bit more compliant. Um, And the guy from Toronto that that talked about that... um, device um kind of hit right on what what i tell a lot of our clients um in dealing with this because they're a little bit reluctant to put this transmitter on sometimes they don't understand Mm -hmm. why and um you know i've been asked a lot of times how do you get them to put it on and i tell them quite frankly you lie to them you tell them whatever works you find again that trigger and what works a lot for us is i tell them that in that transmitter has got their name, their address, all their medical information, their doctor's information. And when the paramedics pull up on the scene, they scan that, they get it, and um, that's why it's on there to help protect you, and then they can bring you home. Uh, Or they can contact us, and we'll bring you home. And they buy into that. But, again, Mm -hmm. it it comes with, um, as Mara has said, we've got to educate ourselves. We've got to keep reading stuff. Something's going to stick. I try to get all the information I can um, with this disease uh, to help me communicate with um, with the clients and the families, for that matter, uh, just mm-hmm. to make life uh, a little bit better for all of us. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. That Those were great comments, and uh, you added a lot to the show. So thank you for taking the time. I know two hours is a lot to commit uh, for, for all of us, and, and I really appreciate the time that you took to be with us today. Well, thank um, we you. do ha- we do have some comments in uh, in the chat box again. Um, uh, let's see, Elva is saying, you know, make it a habit to snap a photo of your loved one every morning after they get dressed. So, if a, a search needs to happen, you know exactly what they're wearing, which I think is a fantastic idea. Um, you know, uh, Leanne had said to Harry. Um, Let's see, where the heck did the comment go? There's so many of them on here. Um, I lost it. It was up here a ways. Um, Oh, I lost the comment, I guess. Oh, she says um, she knows a caregiver who has a GPS uh, system on uh, her husband, and it's a wristwatch, and it's so that he can go out. So he can go for his walks every day on his own, and so he can feel independent. So, 
you know, they've really um, matched that up as as a friendship in terms of of building independence and allowing for that and allowing the safety that goes with it. Alva was uh, talking about the geofence, and there's different types of of technology out there that that have kind of that that geofence out there. Um, I just read, in fact, I was sharing this with Paul um, before. Um, before we went live, that I was reading an article on dating with dementia. My friend Nancy wrote an article about a Boy Scout who has developed a uh, safe wanderer device, and it's um, he developed it because he worried about his grandfather's safety because he would wander away in the evening, and. Um, it basically is a little electronic advice. Um, it's a small, thin pressure sensor worn on the bottom of the person's foot or with a sock. And when he would get out of bed, it would alert the caregiver's smartphone immediately. And so um, they said that it worked successfully and alerted them 437 times with no false reports. And, um, you know, it's just interesting the different um technology that that is out there and available to us but again it's all about sharing with one another because um not one thing you know works works perfectly on its own and and so it's great for us to be able to to share different ideas and and work collaboratively um with this um chief saunders any last comments that you have that you want to share uh, no, not really. Uh, I would like to, to thank you for the opportunity to uh, to talk about Project Lifesaver and the wandering issue, and and to all the other panelists, uh, I would like to thank them for the some of the insight and comments that they have. Because let's face it, every day that we deal with this is a learning experience, uh, and the more we learn about it, the better we're going to be able to deal with it. And as you said, and I think that's probably one of the most important things that needs to come out of this conversation is there is no one thing that is going to work for everyone. You may have to combine some of these things. Uh, so you really need to, if you're going to do anything, research it, know what you're looking at, ask questions, be informed. Because let's face it, uh, if somebody wants to sell you something, they're going to tell you anything they want you to hear. Mm-hmm. You need to really know what you're looking at and do your research. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Now, um, for people to get a hold of, of Project Lifesaver, what is the, the best route just to go to projectlifesaver.org? Um and um, there they would be able to get all the information, or like you said, they could see if it's in their city. Um, is that typically the best the best place for them to go? They can do that, uh, and then they can, uh, if they want to contact us, there's a tab they can click on, Contact Us, uh, and we will, you know, return that contact. Or if they want to talk to someone, they can call us at one of the two offices we have, uh, one, the headquarters is in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Uh, that number is 772-446-1271. Or they can call the uh, Chesapeake, Virginia office, uh, 
888-585-5502. Or they can go to our 1-800 number, which is 877-580-LIFE, L-I-F-E. And we'll be glad to, uh, to talk to them about it, explain uh, the program to them, how they can get involved, how they can get their communities involved, uh, or any other questions they might have. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being part of this show. This was so informative, and I know a lot of people will be listening. Uh, we're listening now, but we'll be listening later. And I encourage everybody listening to please push this out on your Facebook page. If you have it on a Google account, push it out to your circles. If you're hooked up on LinkedIn, um, this is information that needs to get out to people, and it's it's easy. People can sit back and multitask and, and listen away. Um, to some great information that can really do themselves and their community some good. So, um, again, thank you so much for being with us today, Chief. Really appreciate it. Um, Mara, uh, any any last comments? We definitely want uh, want people to know how to get a hold of you as well um, and Thanks. talk about you know, because your book is loaded with such great information. And, again, her book is called When Caring Takes Courage. What contact information would you like to give people? Um, thank you, Lori. Um, and, again, thank you for this show. This was um, one that I'll be sharing over and over again with folks. And um, before I give you my contact information, the, the last thing I'll just say, you know I have such a reverence for every person living with this disease because I know they were unique before it visited their life and that didn't change afterwards. And I also have a lot of respect for each individual caregiver and I think the intuition they bring to dealing with the situations they face every day is the guiding light that they should always follow. The book is full of tips, but it never tells you what to do, and, and I'm not going to start now. But but I do implore you, you know, to kind of come back to where we started, that wandering occurs. It occurs more often than we think, six out of ten times. It's a different reason for everybody, and it's different at every stage in the disease. So while I won't presume to make any recommendations about what you ought to be doing, I'm just going to ask you to have a plan. Whatever it is, please don't wait until afterwards to think of things that you heard here today that maybe resonated with you that you could try at home today before you need it tomorrow. And I I hope you never do. I hope you're one of the 40% that are never touched by this complication of the disease process. But we don't have the power to know ahead of time who's going to be in the 60% and who's the 40. So please start the conversation. Uh, Please, please start it before you have to. Um, If people want to reach me, Mara Batonis, you can find me on Google Plus Profiles. I just made one. You can find me on (laughs) Facebook. (laughs) I'm very computer illiterate, as Lori knows. Um, You can reach me at Biography Based Care at 1-888-988-1753. We have a Facebook page for biography-based care where we share tips and resources from caregivers all over the world to meet common care challenges. And we also have a When Caring Takes Courage Facebook page so people can get some excerpts from the book and some things that might help them get through the day as well. And you can find our book on Amazon. It's available in paperback, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, paperback, and Nook, and it's even a download on iTunes. But um, just thank you so much to all the caregivers out there every day who set aside big parts of themselves to make sure somebody they love is safe, and much respect to those that are living well with Alzheimer's and dementia right now. Um, You are the pioneers that are setting the tone for what the future will look like, and your voice is important. And Lori, thank you so much for all that you've done to bring this conversation forward and to get people talking about it. This 
could potentially save somebody's life. There's somebody listening right now that's going to do something differently as a result of what they heard. And it might not matter next week and it might not matter next month, but there will come a time when they'll be glad that they did it. And that matters in a huge way. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, um, because you were such a big part in, in making this show come alive. I, I just thought of two other things that I, I want to sneak in here, too. Um, one, I just got an update for my Apple um, phone, my iPhone, and I haven't done it yet, but I was looking over the upgrades, and in that now, it looks like there's going to be emergency contact, uh, an area for emergency contact. So even if the phone is lost, or not lost, but locked, your emergency contact will come up, um, which I think is just a fascinating thing and something that we should all look into um, if we're living with dementia or not, um, because we never know when we're going to be in uh, in need and someone's going to need to know who we are and who can they contact to get more information. Uh, I also wanted to mention that a friend of mine lives in Marietta, um, uh, Georgia, and their police department was utilizing social media um, if there was uh, someone missing. And, I, and I'm not quite sure of the details, but it sounded like you could sign up to be notified um, if there was a missing person. It would just automatically go to your phone, and then they had all these eyes in the city also looking uh, for an individual in need. So I thought that, that was kind of a an interesting point there as well. But um, fascinating show. Again, I thank everybody so much for for being a part of it. I do want to remind people that this afternoon at um, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 Central, 1 Mountain, and noon Pacific time, we will be doing our dementia chats where you can uh, join us free. That's a webinar format um, and talk with those that have dementia. Ask your questions. Uh, I learn something every single time we do we do that show. Um, our last radio shows were um, fairly interesting. If you haven't listened to them, they are all archived um, in podcasts. There was one on Fuel for Thought, which is a new uh, coconut oil um, drink. It's highly concentrated, and it has less calories than coconut oil, um, and um, it's it's helping people in marvelous ways. There's also a Girl Scout we had on who is making a difference with dementia. She's built an identity book that she is sharing with people. And then we had Executive Director Mark Wortman from Alzheimer's Disease International on with us just yesterday talking about the uh, new study released about reducing your risk for dementia. Our next show, uh, next Tuesday, we'll have Karen Truman on who wrote the book, uh, The Dementia Caregiver's Little Book of Hope, um, which will be um, interesting. And then, again, I want to encourage everybody, if, if you have a product, service, or tool that can help somebody dealing with dementia or caregiving, please, please, um, you know, join our resource directory. It's free. There, you know, it's, there's no cost to you. Um, all you have to do is click on a button. It'll take you about five minutes to do. If you need instructions, I would be glad to send those to you. But we have to start um, as a society getting better, sharing knowledge. And again, one person or one organization can't do it alone. We need all voices heard because everybody, everybody needs different things, 
at different times. Um, on our blog, there are a couple of, um, or you can actually go to the, the home page, there's a couple of great um, videos. One has to do with Greg O'Brien. He's a veteran journalist who's had dementia for about six years. Um, and a news channel did four different videos of him. I have one posted. I'll be posting another one this week and then um, one each the following week. And then our friend Sandy Helperin um, had a feature story done on him. Uh, by CNN about driving. And along with that, I also posted a link um, to a two-hour special we did probably about a year ago on driving. And it was uh, it was kind of like this. It was absolutely fascinating because we had people with dementia. We had caregivers. We had a sheriff with us. We had an insurance agent. We had a doctor. Um, so it was a really interesting conversation. But again, another extremely important topic that we need to that we need to talk about. Um, so much, so much going on. Some upcoming events. If you're in um, in Roseville, Minnesota tomorrow, come to the Roseville Library um, for our town hall meeting where we're going to be uh, talking with uh, people living with dementia. I'll be interviewing three couples and we're going to be talking again with the uh, police and fire about emergencies, how to prevent and what to do. And again, I will be bringing up Project Lifesaver with that. I will also be speaking at Episcopal Homes on the 25th. And then I'll be out in uh, Pennsylvania um, at the Phoebe Institute for their annual aging conference on uh, October 16th. And we're going to be taking a global look at grassroots and academic models of dementia care. Again, I will be bringing up Project Lifesaver uh, during that uh, that piece, along with the Purple Angelance and uh, the Wristband Project and so many others. And then on the 21st, I'll be at the... Erie, Pennsylvania, Alzheimer's Association Annual Conference. And on October 23rd, I'll be at the Pittsburgh um, Alzheimer's Association Annual Conference. So those are all open to the public, and uh, I would love to meet you in person. Until next time, have a blessed week. And again, thank you all for sharing the knowledge that we share here on Alzheimer's Speaks. Together, we will shift our dementia care culture. Hi everyone, this is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me, listen now, search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.